Hello, I'm Jonathan Charles, and this is Pocket Dilemmas, where Kerry Law and I tackle political and economic questions which are facing the world today. Where are we now, 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall? How far have the dreams of new freedoms and more prosperity, which animated those events of 1989, been realised? Or has the optimism of that revolutionary year been tempered by the rise of populism and the return of nationalism? both a consequence of the perceived cost of globalisation. What are pocket dilemmas? Are algorithms biased? Will robots take away your job? Do you trust cryptocurrencies? How do we bridge the pay gap? What is the future of poverty? This is dilemmas at ebrd.com. Oh, well, look at this. This is amazing. This says Berlin Operation, 1945. Well, that's a clip from a new BBC documentary about 30 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall. We have the pleasure of uh, having the presenter here with us, the reporter and correspondent, Steve Rosenberg from the BBC. He'll tell us all about his journey. We also have our new chief economist at the EBRD, Beate Javorczyk. Exactly, Jonathan. But before we begin, I just want to share a quick clip that actually comes to my mind when I think of the Berlin Wall. I remember my first film. It was Last Tango in Paris with Marlon Brando. It was like being hit over the head. I did not imagine a film like that could exist. That is when I realized how far behind the West we were. So this is an excerpt from this great Romanian documentary. It's called Chuck Norris vs. Communism. Which, great title. <laughs> great title. Possibly my favorite title ever of any movie. Um, so it's it's my favorite movie about the events that led up to the collapse of the wall and just lifting the Iron Curtain altogether. And kind of like Steve's documentary, it really gives you a glimpse of what life was like back then. You can kind of compare it to what it was, what it's like now. And what's the story then in that documentary? So it's actually this Romanian documentary. It's it's amazing. So, um, first of all, it's on Netflix. You have to watch it if you have not already. Um, it tells the story of this underground VHS shop in the suburbs of Bucharest and this one very brave lady whose name is Irina Nestor, who basically dubs all of these Western films for this Romanian audience. Um, and it's it's amazing. You, you can actually see that just the, the films are kind of the start of the sowing of the seed of this revolution. So, it's incredible. And Steve, maybe you can actually chime in here. Um, I think there was someone who was the equivalent of this lady, Irana or Irina, in Russia? I think her name was Goblin. I think there were several people okay. like that. Yeah, that that kind of underground culture existed uh, back in Soviet times. That's yeah. amazing. So yeah, this underground VHS culture played a massive role in just kind of freeing up the minds of the of the people. And this clip you heard, you hear these two. Um, you know, elderly ladies kind of reminiscing on what it was like to watch Marlon Brando for the first time, I'm sure, you know, blowing their minds. But it really kind of uh, at least made them realize that there was this huge gap between communism and the West. I certainly remember, um, not necessarily movies, but I'm a very big music fan. I remember how important the underground music culture was uh, across the communist bloc at the time, actually, whenever I used to to visit there. Uh, That was clearly, you know, fueling people's uh, interest in other cultures and a culture beyond the communist bloc and those people who were certainly in what might be described as the counterculture within the the communist regions, the communist countries, were certainly uh, listening to whatever music they could get their hands on uh, from the West. 
So here we are, 30 years ago, the collapse of the Berlin Wall set in motion a largely peaceful revolution uh, on the whole, although I certainly remember a, a few violent outbursts overthrowing the communist regimes across uh, Eastern and Central Europe, including uh, Romania, where your film, uh, Kerry, uh, was, was done. Uh, from Poland, Hungary to the Baltics, of course, uh, you know, singing revolutionary songs, people finally embraced their freedom and the world was dramatically changed. I mean, it's hard to explain what it was like living through that. The region has since uh, seen some improvements in living standards, personal freedom and political rights, as well as integration with Western Europe in some cases. But in some countries, democratization has stagnated or even gone into reverse, generating inequality, social dislocation, and of course, prompted emigration. Countries in our regions have undergone transition to a market-based economy led by the private sector. And of course, we in the EBRD have been crucial to some of those changes. You can read our assessment, by the way, of our countries in our transition reports on EBRD.com. And by the way, our new report will be uh, launched very soon in November. And I'm sure we'll have a great discussion around that a little later on. So, Jonathan, that November night in 1989, it's one of those events that happens and, you know, the world stops. Where were you? I was the BBC's Europe reporter at that time, actually. And uh, so I'd been in and out of uh, various communist countries in the months before November 1989, uh, the events in Hungary the previous summer. The, uh, where lots of Germans had gone to Hungary uh, because they thought that was a way out into the West. Uh, I'd been in Eastern Germany a couple of times where uh, rallies were taking place in places like Leipzig, uh, and people were shouting, we are the people, wir sind das Volk. Uh, they were shouting on the streets there. So on that November night, uh, I was actually on holiday in the United States because we all thought that this was going to be a long time coming. Nobody thought there was going to be such a, a large change. So although it had been building up, we thought we have time. So I went to the States on holiday for a couple of weeks and I've been driving around uh, between Arizona and New Mexico. And I have to tell you, there aren't many news stations you can listen to. These are the days before the internet, before mobile phones, where, and occasionally I would uh, catch the odd news bulletin on, on radio and I would hear that, yes, there were a few demonstrations continuing and I thought okay fine still okay you know and anyway the office can't contact me we don't have mobile phones I flew to New York and uh, I checked into my hotel on November the 9th uh, overlooking uh, Central Park and it was about 6.15. I thought, great, so at 6.30, I put on NBC's nightly news. NBC was the partner of the BBC in those days. And I was absolutely staggered because as I turned on NBC News at 6.30, which was 11.30 at night in the United Kingdom, half past midnight in mainland Europe, there I saw Tom Brokaw, the presenter of NBC's nightly news, standing on top of the Berlin Wall. And it had just happened. So I immediately rang the office and they said, you better get back to Europe immediately. So I flew uh, back and I uh, spent the next few months going in and out of, of course, all the communist countries as we followed up on uh, on the stories that happened. Amazing. You know, I guess, you know, I was really young when it happened. I was very, very so young. <laughs> of course, of course. We all were. No, I mean. <laughs> so uh, my memory is, I remember, I think we were all playing outside. And so I don't know if this was a rerun of it, but um, we were all playing outside. And then my, my mother started shouting for us to come inside and we, we didn't really know what that was, that was about. Again, I was really young, so we uh, we did exactly what our mother said. Um, so we came inside, and she said, sit down, watch this. Um, this is going to be historic. I remember my mom just crying. And the only other time I've really remembered her crying like that while watching the TV was when Princess Diana died. <laughs> it's burned into my memory. I didn't really get it because I was so young, but I remember being like, okay, my mom is really upset. 
we're sitting here quiet watching the, the, the TV, but it was, um, you know, it's something that I'll always there remember. There was de- definitely a sense, you know, I remember it incredibly well, a sense of the world having dramatically changed in that one moment. The, the other interesting thing um, is, is that everyone thought, well, these countries are going to become like us very, very quickly. Well, of course, we now know that's rather fanciful, that change takes a, a tremendous amount of time. Exactly. You know, and I think people were really, were really optimistic. So there was this poll, this uh, poll that was done in the U.S. in 1989, this Gallup opinion poll. And America Americans were really optimistic about what would happen to Eastern Europe after the fall of the wall. So um, over 71% thought the economic well-being would really increase, that that political freedom would be, uh, would also increase. So, you know, people were really optimistic. And even though, you know, like you said, it's not 10 years on and things haven't, you know, things aren't exactly like the West in these countries, um, people are still really positive about what has happened. So comparing this 1989 poll to this one recently done, um, this Pew survey, you actually see that people are still optimistic. So when looking at a lot of these countries in Eastern Europe, um, you know, a lot of them really still support democracy and they think that democracy is the best form of government. There's there's a long way to go. I mean, these countries, they've had their challenges, but you can see that there's still a lot of optimism um, and our regions have made a great journey and they'll continue on that journey towards, you know, full democracy. In a I, lot I of do countries. think, by the way, there are good grounds for optimism. You know, if I think back to the very first time I went to the Soviet Union for the BBC, it was 1985 and it was Konstantin Chernenko's funeral. Uh, and uh, the BBC had been given a whole load of visas to go in uh, in order to cover the funeral for 24 hours. Uh, and I was one of the reporters working on then a radio program called the PM Programme. Uh, and, and I remember how dark Moscow seemed at that point and, and how lacking in economic life. So I think, you know, there were good grounds for optimism, which I think in some ways have been fulfilled. So there's good reason for that. So I'm, I remain an optimist on all of this. Now, let me remind you, you are listening to Pocket Dilemmas. Our dilemma today is where are we now? 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the dilemma is, you know, have all that, has all that optimism we've been talking about really been fulfilled? And we have a great lineup of guests today. So we actually have Steve Rosenberg, who's BBC Russia correspondent and the former Berlin uh, correspondent as well, who's just filmed this documentary looking at 30 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall. And of course, we have our wonderful chief economist, Beata Yavorchik, uh, in the studio with us as well. Great. Well, yes, both of them are here. So uh, give us then your five seconds take, the headline on that question about how far have the new dreams, the, those freedoms and prosperity, how much has that been realized? Uh, Steve, what do you think? In five seconds? Yeah, ten seconds. Oh, thank you. Generous <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, 1989 was a time of, of hopes and dreams and naivety, and I think many people that I encountered in my travels across Eastern Europe and across Russia uh, have been disillusioned by what's happened. Beata, what do you think? I think that in Central Europe, these dreams have been realized. And I think the best indicator of that is that the young generation feels no different than their peers in Western Europe. The young generation in Eastern Europe dresses the same way, listens to the same music, and if they want, they are able to visit their Western peers. I like those conflicting <laughs> opinions. And the best thing of all, current college students take it for granted. That's the only world they know. For the most part, they don't realize that the world was very different 30 years ago. And actually, I guess, Beata, drawing on that, uh, and Steve as well. So, Steve, you were based in Russia, and Beata, you grew up in Poland. How have these countries really changed in the last 30 years, based on your experience? Steve, we'll start with you. Well, I was, I was in Moscow in November 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell. So I, I viewed all of that on a tiny little television set in my hotel room. I was studying Russian there for a year. 
the Soviet Union was changing a lot in 89 domestically. But then you had the, 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 the crumbling of the Soviet empire going on at the same time. And this was shocking to people that I can remember because Soviet TV would show images of people power, the wave of people power coming across uh, Central and Eastern Europe. And this was shocking for people that their, their empire w was crumbling. But there was hope, I remember, in 89. People were talking about, well, perhaps now that the Iron Curtain has come down, perhaps East and West will finally join hands and walk off into the sunset together. And, and Gorbachev, I remember, was talking about the common European home and 30 years on, that just hasn't materialized. Um, there is no common European home. There is division. And some people would say there are new barriers, there are new iron curtains, new divisions in Europe. You know, the different sides blame each other. But I think there is a sense, certainly amongst people who remember 89 and who were filled with hope in 89, that things haven't taken the path they'd hoped. Interesting. Piata? Well, from my perspective, the changes have been tremendous, both in terms of economics and politics. Do you remember black and white TVs? Hmm. The change that took place is akin to stepping out of the black and white TV and going into a color movie. It's leaving the world of rationing, of food shortages, of uh, vodka and cigarettes and chocolate and meat being purchased only if you had the necessary vouchers and moving into the world of abundance. And while overabundance may, be, may have its downsides, it's clearly more dispiriting to live in the world of empty shelves. I also remember being in East Berlin in the mid-1980s, standing near the Brandenburg Gate and looking over to the other side. And I thought that I would never be able to just take a walk and reach West Berlin under the gate. So now, when I'm able to drive from Warsaw to Lisbon without encountering a single passport checkpoint, I still find it amazing. So that's a common European home. And in fact, I do remember Mikhail Gorbachev. I remember being as a, when he visited London, actually, and he talked about the common European home. I think he was speaking maybe in the Houses of Parliament, actually. I think there was one of his trips in about 1989 or 1990 uh, in which he uttered that. So the common European home in that sense, you know, for some countries, not for Russia, but certainly for other countries of the communist bloc, certainly came true. And Poland was a bit, as I remember, because I do remember going to Poland a few times as well before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Poland was slightly in advance of the change, actually. Change was already starting to happen economically in Poland, wasn't it? To some extent, a slight crack. Poland was different in a sense that there was some limited private sector and agriculture was private. However, we had this enormous economic crisis in the late 1980s. I remember that. Well, we might be able to go back to that a bit later on. Steve, your documentary took you on the road all the way from Russia to Germany through the Baltics and beyond a tour of those former communist lands, uh, now very, very different. What did it feel like coming back to Germany and, and, and getting that sense of change, of economic prosperity starting to, to seep in, even to Eastern Germany? Because Eastern Germany, yes, it still hasn't entirely caught up with the West, but it is. It is different. But I think the, the, the thing that struck me most of all from that whole project, uh, which took sort of five months, was my trip to Eastern Germany. We went to this abandoned Soviet military base, Wunstorf, which was the headquarters of the Soviet military, this vast base. And there was an event going on marking the 25th anniversary of uh, the last Russian soldiers leaving East Germany, a big event, and, and, and the last Russian soldier to leave Germany came back for it. 
um, Mr. Terentiev, and there were lots of German statesmen and uh, locals who lived around the base, Germans, at this event. And I was really struck by the fact that they were so pleased to have some of the Russians back. They were applauding him. They were talking very nostalgically about the the old GDR days when the Russians were there at the base. I I, I was totally surprised by this. And I was chatting to some of the, the Germans there, and they were saying that things hadn't panned out as they'd hoped. Uh, economically, uh, there was this sort of East German nostalgia or nostalgia, and uh, that made a big impression on me because although there, there's no doubt that so much positive change has happened in 30 years across Eastern Europe and Central Europe, there's no doubt about that. And certainly in the Baltic states, in Latvia and Estonia, there was a much more positive vibe. But there in Eastern Germany, in that one place, at that one event, uh, most of the Germans I was talking to uh, were so nostalgic about the old days. But that's quite interesting, isn't it? And I thought when I watched the documentary, which I really enjoyed, by the way, and you can uh, see it on the bbc.co.uk. Uh, you can find it on the BBC iPlayer if you're in the United Kingdom. The thing that I found watching it is you get a sense of disconnection uh, that actually you do understand, and it did bring back memories for me as well, just how destabilizing that sort of change is for many people. And, and even all these years on, in many countries, you know, the communist bloc, you feel that that destabilization still, the repercussions remain. Absolutely, because it's all very well, you know, an iron curtain disappears, a, a, a Berlin Wall is, is knocked down, but that's just the start. And uh, it's taken Europe quite a lot of time to get used to this, this, this new situation. 30 years ago, I remember things seemed so simple. You know, the, the Iron Curtain's gone and now that Europe can unite. Brave new world. Brave yes. new world, shared values, common values. It's rather more complicated now. Actually, the end of history is what we talked about at the time, Beata, wasn't it? Yeah. Indeed. EBRD just had to go into those countries, fix them, move them to a market economy and all would be good. If only life was that simple. This is Pocket Dilemmas the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. Review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com, follow us on Twitter at ebrd. Now, although politically the latest polling uh, suggests in Germany that Die Linke, they're the left, the extreme left, uh, and AFD are in the lead, uh, closely followed by the CDU, it is quite an interesting dynamic. So, you know, you do get, in, particularly in the East, this, this suggestion that uh, people still embrace extremes in some ways. Uh, you know, maybe that's part of the communist legacy as well. I think so. I mean, it's even more extreme in Russia. Mm. Um, it's interesting, Beata was talking about abundance, and how, uh, you know, suddenly when the shops were full of things, you know, that's a great thing. And indeed it is. And it's great that people in Eastern and Central Europe can now get, uh, you know, the same mobile phones that people in, in, in Western countries are using. But I remember Moscow in 91, 92, when the system changed. and You had all this abundance in the shops there. Suddenly the shops were full of things. Whereas before, uh, there were long queues, there were empty shelves. But even that abundance, you know, confused people because the prices were very high. People couldn't actually afford to buy the things that were in the shops. So even that abundance of goods didn't make a, such a positive impression on people in Russia, uh, which is part of the problem, I think, because the 90s were a difficult time for Russia and Russians, and there was a, a lot of people fell into poverty. Uh, and that is why democratic ideas and democratic values haven't 
taken root, I think, in Russia. Yeah, and I remember at the time there were many people who really couldn't feed their families, you know, particularly if they were in state jobs, uh, where suddenly they either lost their jobs uh, or they were overcome by inflation. Absolutely. The people went months without getting their pensions or months without getting their salaries. People were paid in you know, goods that they made mm, at their mm. factories. So, Steve, we see that technology today plays a huge part in the political landscape, you know, especially social media. You know, on one hand, you have free speech being the cornerstone of democracy, but then on the other hand, you have all this misinformation. What do you see the relationship between governances and kind of this information space? This is a very difficult question. It And, and the whole uh, concept of uh, disinformation and fake news and information wars has really um, dominated the headlines for the last four or five years. And uh, there's no doubt that uh, this has become a priority for the Russian government. Uh, Russian officials have said that information is almost as powerful or important as traditional missiles. So uh, it's clearly being used as a weapon. The whole idea of information being weaponized has really transformed the landscape. And it's a very difficult thing to to defend against, I think. Let me remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas. Our dilemma today is where are we now? 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, how far have the dreams of new freedoms and more prosperity, which animated those events of 1989, been realised? Um, has the optimism of that revolutionary year been tempered by the rise of populism and the return of nationalism? Both consequences, of course, of the perceived cost of globalisation. Do you think that modern political narrative, you know, Steve, is fit for its purpose, that uh, people there have bought into that capitalist dream, uh, people believe in the democratic uh, narrative. And I say that because obviously, you know, often in our world that the EBRD operates in, we do see that we have reverses. You know, you might take two steps forward on democracy, then one step back. You know, we're, we're certainly seeing a period where democracy is under stress, where pure market economics are under stress. I remember 30 years ago, if you if you use the word democracy, everyone kind of knew what you meant, you know, or if you use the word truth or facts. But now, uh, if you if you use the word democracy, uh, you have different people saying, well, what kind of democracy do you mean? The, the Russians talk, well, exactly. Yes. The Russians have the phrase managed yes. democracy. You know? And I had a conversation with uh, with Viktor Orban, spokesman mm. in, in Budapest. Uh, and we had this argument about, you know, well, you know, you in the West talk about your democracy, but, you know, that's not the only idea. There are other ideas. All um, uh, landscape has become confused. Well, let's look at the economics. Beata, our mandate at the EBRD is based around helping countries transition to market economies with private sector in the lead. That's what we're about. But some economists, of course, see the market economy as one of the reasons behind that rising inequality, uh, income security, some of the worst ex- of globalization. Do you think the model needs a, a rethink, uh, needs adapting for different times? And would that help people, do you think, in the former communist countries uh, where, where we operate? Would it help them, do you think, to, to, to believe in a, in a different future? I think that a lot of discontent in transition countries comes from the decompression of the wage structure. Take Poland, a poster child for a successful transition, a country that went from being in a deep economic crisis with empty shells to joining the club of rich countries. Our research at EBRD shows that people at every point of income distribution have seen significant growth in their incomes. So in absolute terms, they are much better off now than they were 
30 years ago. Do they feel it, by the way? Do you think they feel, in absolute terms, better off? Because I often hear people saying, you know, especially older people, education was free, this was free, that was free. Life was much better then. You hear it sometimes from older people. that They, they have a nostalgia for, for things that they believe were better and that they were better off in some cases, particularly pensioners. Well, who isn't nostalgic about their youth, right? Um, I think they are better off. But it's hard to see it because they see their relative position um, having declined very much. So in communist countries, you start with a very artificial compression of wages. Essentially, no skill premium, no link between productivity and wages. So transition to market economy had to lead to decompression of wages. And this phenomenon was accompanied or exacerbated by global trends, technological progress, globalization, that further um, introduced changes in relative positions of people. Um, moreover, movement to a market economy meant uncertainty, end of, long, of lifelong employment. Automation, globalization introduces further uncertainty, and people are not well equipped to cope with that. I think pensioners have been shortchanged by the transition, but they can take some comfort from the fact that their children and their grandchildren have the opportunities they could never dream about. So, Beata, 30 years on, kind of now and then, where do you think the region is going in terms of transition to market economies? And where has it really worked best? Are there winners and losers? Who have, tr- who have truly capitalized off of these um, global linkages? I think transition worked best in countries that were able to anchor the reforms and prevent reversals. And for Central European countries, accession to the EU served as such an anchor. It gave a clear direction. It was very clear where these countries had to go, what the end point was, what they had to achieve. And most importantly, there was a public support for the goal of joining the European Union. So no matter which party was in power, their mandate was to continue with the accession process. The second factor that was very important was openness to trade and foreign direct investment. Countries that Uh, embraced openness, were able to catch up quickly in terms of technology. Um, Many policymakers viewed inflows of foreign direct investment as inflows of capitals. But in reality, these were inflows of knowledge, inflows of technologies, know-how, of managerial skills. And this knowledge was passed by firms to their workers, and it spilled over to other firms, to local enterprises. And that stimulated faster productivity growth and the catch-up process. Your reminder, you are listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. We're looking at 30 years on from the fall of the Berlin Wall. We talked about the euphoria, uh, but it did bring huge challenges for many, many authorities, many countries, uh, that the fall of the wall. And of course, many, you know, amongst those challenges, Steve, you've got emigration, which happened from some countries, uh, brain drain. Uh, Do you think that's still a big problem for a lot of countries in the former Soviet Union? I think it is. And you're quite right. When a a wall falls, uh, it works both ways, doesn't it? People can come in Mm. who couldn't before, but people can go out. I remember um, shortly after the the collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, the Baltic states um, proclaiming their return to independence. I remember going to, I think, Lithuania in the early 90s and meeting quite a few Americans of Lithuanian heritage who'd come back, decided to 
moved to Lithuania to try to build up their country, buoyed by this. You saw that in a lot of former Soviet. I remember yes. actually in Ukraine how often you'd see Canadians. Because it was exciting, and, and they were proud of <laughs> of the changes, and they'd come over. But to keep that going is dif- is very difficult. You need to have momentum. You need to have positive change and positive economic change in a country, uh, because if if the borders are open and the walls are gone, then naturally people go in search of work. If they haven't got any work because of economic hardship in their own countries, they seek work elsewhere. And I think that's what happened uh, from a lot of um, uh, former Soviet republics, including the Baltic states. People went west in search of work. Uh, And uh, this brain drain has affected many uh, former Soviet republics. And it's not over yet. And it's not over yet, absolutely. And and the only way to reverse that is, is, is I think, to, to, to build up the economies, the democracies in, in those other countries. And then to complicate things even further, you have uh, aging. So our population in emerging Europe is growing older, and that has an impact on our economies, especially the healthcare system. You know, I'm just wondering how prepared these countries are to really deal with, with this. It's a huge problem, and it's a huge problem for Russia at the moment, this aging population. They've been battling the demographic problem uh, for years now, and they, they haven't found a solution to it. Beata, what, what then can be done? You know, I mean, Steve just talked about uh, the solution is to build up the economies. That helps to reinforce democracy. That's what we're trying to do in the EBRD in many of these countries. So, so what are the opportunities for these countries? Does it come through automation? Where, where does their economic future best lie, do you think? I would be a bit careful with automation. So technological progress is welcome. It leads to higher productivity, higher standard of living, and it may... it may solve some of the demographic challenges, but it requires adjustment. Um, The Industrial Revolution took 100 years to materialize itself. Now we are seeing changes on a comparable scale happening within decades, and the adjustment may be challenging. So if you think about a country like Slovakia, where the automotive sector accounts for 5% of total employment, if a large chunk of those activities uh, in the automotive se- sector are automized, you will need to think about what to do with the workers who are currently working there. I think the principle we need to follow is we want to protect workers, not jobs. Now, there are other changes looming on the horizon. Um, think about sort of even greater disruption. Think about a global gig economy where there is an online platforms and firms post tasks they want um, completed and workers all over the world bid on them. Right? If this comes, this will be hugely disruptive, not just in Eastern Europe, it will be very disruptive in the industrialized world. And that will force us to rethink how we deal with the social security. And just very quickly, does that extend then the amount of time it takes for these countries to catch up? And, and, and I referred earlier to, you know, the great euphoria in 1989. People thought of a decade and they'll be just like the West. We now know it is many, many decades, this change. But the sort of economic disruption that you've just pointed to that may be coming globally, uh, which drives down probably costs again and, and causes economic disruption. Does that again push back the timetable for emerging Europe to be exactly the same as old-fashioned Western Europe? Well, emerging Europe still has somewhat lower wages than Western Europe, so certainly this can help. But Eastern Europe has wages that are much higher than in China or India. So I think in the future, 
Eastern Europe needs to think about transition to an innovation-based economy. And that's not trivial. Where does identity lie in all of this? The question of carving out new identities, because uh, clearly, you know, certainly in the Soviet Union, Steve, you had uh, countries which felt they were part of a whole, and then suddenly that changes. They have to carve out their own national identity. Uh, Poland, you know, its original identity was as a, a country which was forced to be part of the communist bloc. It then has to find its own national identity again post-1989. Where do we stand as to where those identities are in terms of being built? Do you, do you feel they have successfully done that, many of the countries, first of all, Steve? It's a really interesting question because I suppose there is more to an identity than, than waving a flag. You know, 30 years ago, we saw across uh, Central and Eastern Europe flags being waved and this rise of of sort of um, uh, nationalist feeling and pride in, in, in countries and, and nations. But perhaps there's more. It takes more time to understand um, what is the Ukrainian nationality. I mean, if, if you take Ukraine, Ukraine is a country divided. Mm. Very dif huge differences from the East and the West and Kiev. Um, Russia, I mean, a massive country, the, the largest country in the world with so many different nationalities. Uh, and what is a Russian? So it, it's, it's quite a difficult one. And uh, perhaps linked to that question is this attempt to create a new national idea in different countries. The Russians have been trying it since the collapse of communism. They haven't really succeeded in doing it. They haven't really come up with anything to replace, say, the communist ideology. That, that, that has been successful and has sort of binded the, bound the country together. But I think this idea of, of, of nationality, a, a national identity, a national idea are linked, definitely. Beata, what do you think about Poland? I mean, on the, so to me as an outsider, Poland does seem to have successfully found an economic way forward. But does it have that sense of identity yet, do you think? Well, I don't think Poland went through a crisis of identity. I think Poland has kept strongly its identity throughout the centuries through 123 years when it wasn't on the maps of Europe. Um, the narrative in the early 1990s was in terms of Poland rejoining the Europe which was, in a sense, surprising because we've never left Europe. And you're very central in Europe. And yeah. we are very yeah. central. Yes. But we felt that we have been removed from Europe just because we were poor, just because our world was black and white. Now, people are starting asking questions, well, what does it mean to be European? And the world is changing, the values are changing, and some of these values are clashing with traditional values in Poland. And that's leading to some tension. And big part of the tension is that these changes are happening incredibly fast. Okay, so I actually have a question for, for both of you. So, um, you know, we're evaluating the Berlin Wall 30 years on, you know, when people were dreaming of prosperity and, and freedom. Do you think that capital, capitalism and democracy are natural bedfellows? And if not, what needs to be done to make sure that they better match? And I guess, Beata, we'll start with you. Well, I would like to think that in the long run, democracy is essential for a market economy and vice versa, because democracy and markets reinforce each other. Yes, in the short run, an autocratic government may push through reforms that may enhance growth. But without democratic checks and balances, 
it's very hard for such a government to avoid slipping into incompetence, corruption, and repression. The economy, sooner or later, the situation, the market economy will not be owned, will not be supported by the society, and it will become politically unsustainable. Similarly, democracy without a market economy is not disciplined by market forces. It may become vulnerable to being taken over by populists. In the short run, a government may shut down price signals, may limit capital flows, may force banks to lend to finance its deficit. But eventually it will run the economy into the ground and the whole thing will collapse. Steve? I think if, uh, if Vladimir Putin was sitting here <laughs> instead of me, <laughs> an unlikely scenario, I grant you. You look very similar. <laughs> Thank you. He's got slightly more hair than me. He would probably say, look, I mean, Russia is a capitalist society. We have capitalists. We have uh, oligarchs. We have businessmen. You know, he'd also say we have democracy. Uh, but I think clearly Russia is becoming an, an increasingly authoritarian uh, country. There are major problems with democracy. Uh, and so the elements of capitalism that exist in Russia uh, are insufficient to, um, I think, protect democracy. I think when you speak to young people, uh, you know, they have uh, a belief that they can change the world, that uh, they're against inequality. And so, the, you know, the, the, the phrase capitalism comes up in, in that sense. But I didn't detect any particular unhappiness with the, the general direction. I talked about East Germany before, Eastern Germany, and that's, that struck me. But in all the other places we went to, in the, the Baltic states and Hungary too, people generally uh, believed that uh, the systems that were in place were better than, than the systems that existed 30 years ago. Steve, what do you reckon? Do you think people on the whole, the, the, all those people you were talking to, their glasses half full rather than half empty on the whole? I think... Um, Perhaps people's dreams were, people had too many dreams, too many hopes 30 years ago. Unrealistic ones. Unrealistic ones, yes. Uh, hoping that someone would, would wave a magic wand and suddenly with the wall gone and the Iron Curtain gone, that everything was going to be wonderful. Well, of course, life doesn't pan out that way. It takes time and there are bumps along the road. When you compare things today to what they were like 30 years ago and the fact that Europe was a continent divided, there was no free movement. There was this uh, clash of ideologies. Um, pe many people believed there was a real danger of, of a nuclear holocaust. You know, that was a terrible time. And thank goodness steps were taken at the end of the 80s to, to move away from that. There's concern now because, once again, we have sort of being dragged into another Cold War-type uh, confrontation. But still, compared to what there was 30 years ago, a lot has been achieved. But I think you can't be complacent. And um, there have to be efforts to try to uh, bring countries, peoples together. And at the end of the day, you know, democracy is democracy and, and truth is truth and facts are facts. And I think uh, the, the biggest challenge that everyone faces today is this um, confusion that is being put out there in, uh, by governments, uh, not just by Russia, uh, about what exactly truth is, what exactly democracy is, what, what are democratic values. And I think um, that needs to be addressed. And as a poll, you're one of those people who had hopes and dreams back then. Uh, what, what do you feel all this time on them? Well, I think 
I agree with Steve that people were somewhat unrealistic in how soon the change could come and how successful it would be. Everybody thought that overnight Poland could become Switzerland and nobody wanted to think about the fact that higher standards of living require longer work hours, uh, that a market economy means some unemployment and uncertainty. At the same time, I take comfort from the fact that between 80 and 90 percent of Polish people think that the EU is a good thing. Uh, and, the, and the EU stands for freedom, for democracy, for openness. So in that sense, I believe the society has embraced them. Um, of, so I think we should be optimistic, but not complacent. Um, we should not take for granted that the support for these values will continue. Um, we have spoken a lot about fake news. I think we need to fight fake news, the post-truth world. We need to get the facts out there and we need to educate the public. Um, the modern world is a complex place and we cannot expect the voters to understand all the nitty gritty of trading arrangements, customs union or antitrust legislation. But what we can do is we can restore trust in experts independent technocrats who can make informed decision on behalf of the voters without being captured by political interests. So also, please go and watch this amazing documentary by Steve on the BBC website or iPlayer. It's actually incredible. I think it's uh, informative. It's interesting. And I think it'll really help shine a light on something that, that, was, uh, that was monumental, not only for our bank, but um, for Europe in general. Yeah, still being felt today. Okay. What about your conclusions? You've heard this debate. You were very young. You're still very young. You were incredibly young in 1989. Uh, you know, I like both uh, some excerpts from what Beata and Steve have both said. You know, I, I like that Steve said there are there's still an iron curtain, but it's just a new iron curtain and maybe one that's that's harder to lift because it's invisible or at least uh, harder to tackle because it's not made out of steel and concrete. Um, you know, but I also like what Beata said that even though back then, you know, back then it seemed it seemed pretty dark and dreary. But in comparing today with back then, people are actually really optimistic. So even though the world hasn't changed so much in the you know, it, even though the world hasn't really um, changed to the extent that we maybe thought it was going to change, I think we've come a long way, and it shows that. Banks like ours, the Transition Bank, are really needed. There's a lot of transition to be done. Um, and the youth, as Steve said, are very optimistic about, you know, about democracy, about things getting better, about tackling a lot of this misinformation. So I'm optimistic. I remain optimistic. Um, I just think there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of human ingenuity that needs to come into play in order to tackle a lot of this uh, misinformation and, and things that are, are new, actually. Yeah, I think I'm realistically optimistic as well. You know, I mean, I try to take the long arc of history at my age. You don't have much choice when you look back at, at all these things. And, and when I think about uh, a long time before 1989, going into those former communist countries as I did during the 1980s, you know, to me, the, it will always stay with me the the fact that people did not have that personal freedom. Uh, the, the fact that somehow life was not, you know, I think you, you said, they uh, a bit like a black and white television set, life was not being lived in color. Uh, and, and I think to me, that is the dramatic difference. And that's the reason you have to be optimistic, that it is a road with hard challenges, hard economic and political challenges. But somehow it's a road that, you know, has been taken. Uh, it was a road that led to a dramatic change of events in 1989. 
but it is a road that is paying off bit by bit and we shouldn't be impatient. It will deliver in the end. I think it's going to be many, many more decades. It is about future generations and bit by bit things improve. Um, perhaps the lack of reality in 1989 was the thought that things would absolutely change 100% overnight. Life is just not like that. Do you know, my biggest concern, though, if you go back to, to, to 89 and you think about the people who were uh, in charge, in power 30 years ago, people like Thatcher and Cole and uh, Mitterrand and, um, and Gorbachev, these were people who remembered what it was like to go to war. They remembered the... Uh, the millions of people who were killed in the Second World War, and they were determined to change things so that that would never happen again. The war finished in '45, not so long before. The people who are running things today, it's a different generation. They don't remember that. And that's my biggest concern, that we can't be complacent. We have to realize that there's always a danger of being sucked back into a 1930s scenario or another war, and um, especially when there are so many nuclear missiles around. And that's something we always have to remember, how easy it is uh, when things are changing to actually, actually be sucked into a very dangerous situation. Steve, Beata, thank you very much indeed. A fascinating conversation. A big thank you from Kerry and from me. Uh, let me remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas uh, and we'd love to hear from you. It is the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. Let us know what you think. Uh, review us on iTunes. Email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com. We'd love to know what you think of this particular episode. Follow us on Twitter at EBRD. From us until next time, goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, send us your feedback, suggestions and ideas on dilemmas at ebrd.com. And remember, reviewing and rating us helps others to find us. Until next time.